Good morning, everyone. We are here at the beginning of our new series, uh, working through the letters of uh, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. It's going to take us some time. We'll be finishing uh, somewhere around September, October, uh, but I'm sure it will be a very rich time as we dig into these letters. And as we go through these letters, uh, I trust that uh, a lot of it will maybe sound familiar to you, um, whether you've actually read through these letters or not, because as I was uh, preparing for this series, I, I realised that um, I often cross-reference uh, to other passages of Scripture, as you know, and uh, 1, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians uh, seem to be ones that I refer to a lot, probably because they're very practical letters. Uh, they're Paul writing to a, a church uh, and uh, helping them to deal with the issues that they were facing and to think prayerfully and carefully about what it means for them to be the church. There's a, an introduction to uh, the letters uh, in the newsletter, uh, so a bit, little bit of a background uh, and uh, you could also, if you wanted to get a bit more of a information about Corinth, read Acts chapter 18 because that's where Paul uh, first brought the Gospel to the Corinthians. But we need to begin uh, by seeing how Paul describes these Corinthian Christians. And we'll see as we work our way through these two letters that the church at Corinth was a very messy church. There were things going on in that church that if we witnessed them today, we'd probably say that's a church you should avoid at all costs because of how chaotic sometimes the gatherings were, because of the kinds of things people in the church were doing and getting away with. But see how Paul describes them. He says, they are those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. And in verse 4, he says he always gives thanks for them. This term, sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints, encompasses both the promise that in Christ God has made us his holy people That's what we are, that's what we will always be. But it also encompasses the call to pursue holiness, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to be eager to see that holiness that we have received from God expressed in how we live. It's ultimately the work of God that... Uh, determines our holiness, not ours, yet to have received such a high calling to be called saints means we have a solemn responsibility to live into that calling. See how this sanctifying work of God in Christ is unpacked in verses 4 to 9. Paul's thankful for the Corinthians primarily because not of what they are in themselves, but because of what they are and will be because of God's gifts to them. See what he's given them. Firstly, they're the recipients of grace in Christ Jesus. What they have isn't what they deserve. God has freely given to them despite 
what they do deserve, which is wrath. Secondly, this grace means that they are enriched in speech and in knowledge. What they're able to know, what they're able to speak is what they've heard, what they've believed, the testimony of Christ, the Gospel. Thirdly, they're not lacking in any gift, any spiritual gift. Now, this is crucial to know, especially when we come to the matter of spiritual gifts in chapters 12, 13 and 14, where the emphasis will be not on spiritual but on gift. Fourthly, they're living in the hope of the revelation of Jesus. They know that this world will only be made right when Jesus returns. Fifthly, their hope is grounded in the knowledge of their justification. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's their security, that they are made right with God through the cross of Christ and nothing will ever undo that. Nothing will erase their status as sons and daughters. And finally, all of this rests on the faithfulness of God the Father. It's not about how faithful we try to be but on how faithful the Father has proven himself to be in Jesus. See how those verses give a wonderful summary of the Christian faith. If we were to lose all of the Bible except for those six verses, verses four to nine, they alone would be enough to sustain us. And it's because of these gifts of God to his people that we can be sure of reaching his goal of being saints, of being his holy people. So there were then really two big questions that the Corinthians were wrestling with in the light of all of this, what they knew in the Gospel. The first question is, well, how can it be that we can know this? How do we know that it's true, that it's reality? And secondly, given that it's true, how are we then to live as God's people as we move towards that goal? Well, Paul answers the second question immediately by saying that we do it together united in the same mind and the same judgement. And he then shows us how having the, the right answer to the first question, how can we know this, is actually then the key to being united in mind and judgement. Paul's main concern for them is that they are united And that's shown by the fact that it's the first issue he raises straight away. Unity is fundamental to the Gospel because the Gospel isn't about how I get into heaven when I die. The Gospel is about how God has redeemed a people for himself and I am included in that people. Unity with one another 
in Christ is a prominent theme that runs right through the New Testament letters. Just some examples going through a few of the epistles. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 15. Or in Philippians 2.2. 2. No, sorry, that's Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Or Philippians 2.2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I can't remember how many of these I put up. That's, that's it. There are others and the references are there in the outline. It's the chief concern of the New Testament letters that God's people be united. It was also a chief concern of Jesus himself. See how Jesus prays for God's people. I do not ask for these, his disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. The oneness that Jesus is praying for here is, firstly, it's a unity with the Father, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That's what he prays for us. Because in the Son we have the same Father, then we are one family in him. That's why there's not much else that's more grievous than division and quarrelling in the church. Quarrelling, fighting, judging, refusing to love one another is the complete antithesis to the Gospel because it undermines the fact that the ultimate goal of the Gospel is a unified people, God's family. God's goal is that as a unified people we together will bring glory to him. To divide the church isn't to just divide an organisation, it's to divide God's family. Disrupting unity in the church is so serious that church leaders are instructed to deal with it in the same way that they might respond to false teachers or to an openly sinful lifestyle. Titus 3 tells us, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. A person may have perfect theology, they may be above reproach in terms of morality, but if they're divisive, 
they actually disqualify themselves from being a member of the church. That's how important unity is to Jesus. So all of this background should help us see why Paul is so eager to confront the Corinthians about this issue. What was causing the, the quarrelling? Well, on the surface it was about who was considered greatest of the apostles. Some said Paul, some said Apollos, some said Cephas, another name for Peter. And then those who were super spiritual said, I don't care about the apostles, I just follow Christ. Are you a, a Calvinist or an Arminian or a Lutheran? Do you like reading John Piper or Max Licardo or Anne Voskamp? And who do you think's the best preacher? Su Kyong Tam, Peter Wright or James Krieg? Or do you say, forget the preachers, I just follow Jesus? The Corinthians may have lived a long time ago on the other side of the world, but we're just like them, aren't we? We like to follow our teachers. We like to have our celebrity pastors. We like to become disciples of those whose words resonate with us, who scratch our itching ears. Notice that Paul doesn't say as a solution to this division, well, just follow them all. And neither does he say, yep, forget what all these people are saying, just follow Christ. Instead, he he actually goes digs down to the problem that underlies this partisanship that leads us to attach ourselves to certain leaders or teachers or theologians or writers, almost as if, as Paul says, as if they had been crucified for us or we were baptised into their name. See, the root of the problem isn't the surface issue of which apostle we prefer or whether we prefer none of them. The problem is how we think that we can come to know the truth of Christ and how we're then enabled and empowered to live as a community, a unified community for him. Is it according to the world's wisdom and methods or is it according to God's wisdom and methods? The world's wisdom and methods leads to division. God's wisdom and methods lead to unity. We all long for unity, don't we? We're all happy to to come here Sunday morning to Bethel Christian Church because uh, we know, at least at the moment, we're unified, we're one in Christ. This longing for unity and the, the tendency to to seek the solution for our division in particular people and ideas. It's not just a church thing, it's a human thing. Division between people is the world's number one problem. Down through history, human beings rally around those who stand up and who promise to bring unity. For example, our own Prime Minister, 
His approval rating surged to over 60% in 2020. Why? Because he was seen to unite the Parliament. They worked together across party lines in handling the COVID crisis. We love unity and so we like a Prime Minister who brings unity. US President Joe Biden recently said in his inauguration speech uh, when he was referring to Trump supporters, he said, they're not our enemies, they're Americans. This is the time to heal in America. I will work to be a president who seeks not to divide but unify. I won't see red states and blue states, I will always see the United States. People love unity. Even Trump's slogan, Make America Great Again, was a call to unity. Let's all be together to make our country great. That's been the mission of world leaders, good and evil, from Alexander the Great, Mao Zedong, Adolf Hitler, Kim Jong-un. It's always been somehow about creating a unified people. But what unity in the world normally means is unity under my banner, unity agreeing to my ideas, unity obeying my commands. The worldly way of trying to achieve unity is either wisdom, philosophy and ideas, or power, coercion or military force, or by some combination of the two. The, uh, the communist revolutions that took place in the 20th century happened because people had taken on board a philosophy, Marxism, and they, they saw in that philosophy a vision for an equal and a unified humanity. And since they so passionately believed it, they were willing to use violence and force in order to make people comply with it. Religious cults do the same thing. They say our unique ideas and doctrines will set you free but then they have to use all kinds of power tactics to get people in and to make people stay in. Well, our passage addresses these two approaches and at the time they characterised the two main cultures that were at play in the Corinthian church, the Jews and the Greeks. The Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. The Jews demand signs. They demanded visible manifestations of power that would demonstrate the truth of the Gospel. That's why they were always demanding that Jesus give them a sign to prove his authority. And it's why, as Paul was writing this letter, the tensions between the Jews and the Romans was beginning to heat up because the Jews were wanting their Messiah to come and to overthrow the Romans with military power and to set up his kingdom, a political kingdom on earth. 
So the Jews demanded signs. They wanted shows of power. The Greeks sought wisdom. Reasonable, rational, logical philosophy that made sense to their minds. Didn't sound too superstitious or offensive. The Greeks are famous, aren't they, for their philosophers. Men who were so wealthy that they had every hour of the day to sit around and to think and philosophise. Acts 17.21 even says all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That's the Greek philosophers. Well, the Gospel, which Paul calls here the word of the cross, undercuts both worldly wisdom and worldly power. Verse 23 tells us Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Why is that the case? Well, because for the Jews, a crucified Messiah could not rescue them from their political oppressors. A crucified Messiah is both weak and cursed. To be hung on a Roman cross is to be defeated by the power of Rome. Rome who only crucified slaves and traitors. And it also was to be under the curse of Deuteronomy 21-23, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So the Jews were deeply offended by the message of the cross because it called them to put their faith in one whom they considered stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, which ironically is the words of Isaiah 53, the words of their own scriptures. Not only that, the Gospel gives no promise that we will be free of oppressors or persecution or suffering in this life. Instead, the Gospel equips us to go through suffering and through tragedy as we wait for the glory that's to come in the new heavens and the new earth. But the Jews wanted a Messiah who would make everything right now. So, for the Jews, it was a stumbling block. For the Greeks, whose philosophers taught that only the spiritual is good and the physical, the body, is bad, well, a message that God, who is spirit, took on physical human flesh and then suffered in that human flesh was incomprehensible. It went against their view of spirit versus body. They couldn't see how one person's suffering could possibly be of benefit to anyone else, especially when, in their view, the aim of life should be to escape suffering, to escape the body, to escape the earth and to just move into some pure spiritual reality. When Paul was preaching in Athens to philosophers about Jesus and the resurrection, they thought resurrection was the name of a new God because they couldn't comprehend their bodies being 
resurrected. They couldn't see how that could be good, so they just, it was completely out of their categories of thinking. So, to a Greek, Christ crucified and raised was foolish. It was primitive, superstitious nonsense. Now, it should strike us that not much has changed over the last 2,000 years in terms of why people reject the Gospel. Either it doesn't fit into our way of thinking, what's called our world view, our way of thinking and understanding the world in which we live. Today, many people assume that science has given us a complete and satisfactory explanation of the universe, how we got here. And science says that something can only be accepted as true if it can be proven according to the scientific method. So to that person who thinks science is everything, not just one part of the story, the claim that a person was born of a virgin who performed miraculous healings, who was risen from the dead and who will return again, well, that sounds foolish, sounds naive, it sounds anti-intellectual and superstitious. So, we reject the Gospel message because it doesn't fit our thinking or we reject it because it doesn't fit into our way of living. It doesn't give us the guarantee of the things that we think are important or that we have a right to. It doesn't work for us in the way that we want it to work. If I want success and health and wealth and happiness... The message of the cross doesn't work for me because the one who was crucified for me also calls me to deny myself, take up my cross and follow him even if it means persecution and suffering and death. So just as uh, we are not much different to the Corinthian Christians the humanity of which we're a part today is no different really to the humanity of the first century. But we must never fall into the trap of thinking that the way to deal with these rejections of the Gospel is to go along with their reasoning and to think that we can convert a person by using their way of thinking or their way of living. If we say we, we don't, we want a religion, sorry, if we say they want a religion that fits with their way of thinking, we'll then give them a gospel that downplays all those things that are hard to accept. So as someone once described, uh, progressive Christianity, a God without wrath who brought men without sin, into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. We'll end up leaving out the most important parts of the Gospel just to make it palatable. Or if we say they want a religion that works for them in the way that they want it, so we'll give them a Gospel that's practical and relevant. Then we'll end up with a prosperity Gospel that promises all of the 
the things of the new creation in the here and now, but it will fail to deliver. All of that is trying to get to people to know God through the wisdom of the world. But verse 20, I think it's there, uh, verse 20 tells us that God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. How has he done it? We'll see verse 21. Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Literally, this reads, through the folly of preaching. And it refers both to the content, the gospel message, but also the way of communicating it, proclaiming it. How does anyone ultimately come to faith in Jesus? Not by clever arguments, not by philosophical debates, not by signs and wonders or good advice on how to live. No, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's Romans 10:17. I've heard people say things like, the reason I'm a Christian is because Christianity presented to me the only reasonable explanation for the way things are. And I've heard others say something like, I'm a Christian because it helps me to live a a more balanced and successful life. Can you see the basic problem with those approaches? They're both true though, aren't they? Christianity does give the most reasonable explanation for the way things are. And trusting in Christ will bear the fruit of a more balanced and successful life, maybe not successful as the world sees it. But the only reason I should be a Christian is because I realise I'm a sinner. I'm hopelessly lost. I'm under the wrath of God and I see that the crucified and risen Jesus carried my sin. He removed the wrath of God from me and he gives forgiveness and freedom and adoption and an unshakable hope in God's future for me. I see that it's ultimately not about me. God doesn't exist to make me happy or successful. He didn't send Jesus to give me the life that I've always wanted or to give me satisfactory answers to all my questions. Rather, we exist in order to give him glory. He sent Jesus to redeem us so that we might be for the praise of his glorious grace. So we glorify God not when we mount a great watertight defence of the faith, but when we display an implicit trust in the Father, even when we don't have answers for everything. When Jesus is to us everything we need, even if the world's falling apart around us and nothing else seems to make sense. When our lives might be a complete mess, when we've been brought to our knees through tragedy or when it seems the whole world is against us, when worldly wisdom and worldly power have failed, we still have as a firm foundation that solid rock, Christ crucified, 
Christ risen and seated at the Father's right hand. Now, as evidence of this, Paul points to the Corinthians themselves in 26 to 29 and in this we should also see ourselves. See, if the Gospel is all about worldly wisdom and worldly power, why then is the church filled with nobodies, with misfits, with weak and frail and dysfunctional people? We only know of a one Christian in Corinth who had a respectable position in the community, Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, but he had to flee Corinth after being beaten because he'd become a Christian. And that's probably why he's with Paul as Paul's writing this letter a few years later. We'll see as... I mentioned earlier, the Corinthians didn't have their acts together. Their church was filled with problems and division was just the first. They couldn't claim to be wise or clever. They couldn't point to a successful and growing church. They couldn't claim that since knowing Jesus all their problems had been solved. They couldn't say all their bad habits had ended, that their suffering had ceased or their their understanding of God was perfect. All they had in the midst of their weakness and their foolishness and their immaturity was this indescribably precious treasure of the Gospel of Christ crucified. This message declared that the Son of God had stepped down from his position of glory and honour from which he ruled the universe and in humility and love had become what the world called foolish. An obedient servant who laid down his life not just for his friends but for his enemies. The one who is all in all through whom the entire universe was made, for whom whom the entire universe was created. He became nothing. He became weak and low and despised. At the cross, he became a curse for a world that laboured under the curse of sin and death. But see, in verse 30, that this very action which the world calls foolish and powerless is in reality the actual power and wisdom of God to save us. This humble, weak nobody is in himself the display of God's wisdom because in his cross he has accomplished these three great things, these things that uh, the children's performer Colin Buchanan calls big words that end with shun. Firstly, righteousness or justification. We've been made right with God because in the cross, full justice was satisfied. God was shown to be both just and the justifier of anyone who has faith in Jesus. Secondly, he's our sanctification 
this high priestly action of sacrificing himself, Jesus has made us holy. Therefore, we're fit to come into the presence of the Father, to be recipients of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, redemption. He has purchased us with his precious blood. He set us free from our old slave masters of sin and death and the devil and we now belong to him as sons and daughters of the Father, sealed by the Holy Spirit. And so we are in him. We are in Christ Jesus. So now our status as nobodies in the world has changed to be children of God. All that Jesus has as the risen, reigning Son, he lifts us up and he includes us in that. We love talking about ourselves, don't we? Not only because we're the person that we know the most about, but because we like to have the focus of attention on us and for us to to think that we are highly esteemed by others. So we like to talk ourselves up while talking others down. Well, the message of the cross demolishes all of that. We can no longer boast in ourselves. We never could boast in ourselves because all that we have that is of any value is only what has been given freely to us in Jesus. So we need to stop talking less about ourselves and more about the Lord Jesus Christ, to boast in him, to speak of what he has done, to call one another to find our identity and our sufficiency in him alone. Let's pray.